0: From Wine Insiders, this is Sniff, Sip, Repeat, a monthly podcast for lively discussions all about wine. In each episode, we'll be speaking with industry experts, from vineyards and tasting rooms to restaurant and retail, to give you a little inspiration for what to pour next. I'm your host, Kristen, and I've worked in the wine industry for many years now, and I'm excited to bring conversations with my peers directly to you. Are you ready? Let's take a sip. If you live in the northern hemisphere, you're in the thick of winter right now. So today we have a very special two-part episode called "The Big Chill." First, we're going to talk about wine made by our friendly neighbors to the north in Canada, including the elusive ice wine. Later in the podcast, we'll taste three wines we've curated to pair to your coziest winter dishes. So let's meet the first of our two guests. To talk about Canada, I'm joined by Robert Stelmachuk, an advanced certified sommelier. With over 30 years in the industry, who is currently Wine Director at Mott 32 in Vancouver, Canada. Robert was awarded Sommelier of the Year in 2020 by Vancouver Magazine, and in the same year, Mott 32 was listed among the top 100 restaurants by Canada Magazine. So hello, Robert. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you very much for having me on today.
0: I'm so excited. So (laughs) I kind of want to tell our listeners why you're here. So I Did not even realize I was going to be traveling to Vancouver, kind of had a last minute trip between Christmas and New Year's, and you were one of the first people I met because right after flying in, I had dinner at the lovely Mott 32, and you were so friendly to sit me down, and then I got this whirlwind VIP tasting. So I actually want to thank you, and um, to say I'm so glad that we met, I'm so lucky to have you on the show because you really have serious wine chops. So I think (laughs) I like to start every show letting each guest talk about their background, so Can you tell me a little bit about, you know, who you are and how you got in wine for our listeners?
1: That's kind of a loaded question, and it goes back a long way, actually. Um, So I was born in Ontario, northwestern Ontario, a great little town called Thunder Bay. Um, Didn't grow up with wine. Wine wasn't part of my culture growing up. Um, I've explained before that to me, probably growing up, the coolest part about wine was being able to take the bag out of the box and blow it up as a pillow when i went camping and that was <laughs> that was that was literally that was kind awesome. of that was that was wine to me so i mean you know uh le piador i think was the uh horrific first ex- foray into wine for me and a little bit of papal wine i was an altar boy growing up and uh, i think the very first taste of wine i probably ever had would have been communion wine but anyways um yeah so i moved to the west coast uh probably just after college just as i was starting my career I'd already been in restaurants a little bit and then third day on the job they were like oh we're having a wine tasting for the staff on saturday and i was like that's a thing really that's <laughs> like like what's going like so someone's coming here to taste wines with us like so cool. And I met a guy who t- still today is a very dear friend of mine. Uh, Peter Burroughs was working and uh, we tasted all. I still remember we tasted Leo Burring, Orlando or Jacobs Creek and Wyndham Estates from Australia. And I remember going to him after and saying, like w- wine can be like a job, like a career. What's this about? So started studying on my own back then. This is, I hate to say it, but this is pre-internet days. And literally, the more I started learning about wine, the more I fell in love with it. And it just became this kind of hobby that turned into a career that turned into an incredible life for me so far, being able to travel the world with wine. Um, But probably really got serious when I started in a fine dining restaurant in Vancouver back in the day called the William Tell and I found that my guests knew more about wine than I did and I wasn't comfortable with that. So I started learning at that time. I was lucky to have Brian Turner step in as a wine coach to me and help mentor me Um, and then just kind of snowballed from there, literally working at all aspects of the job. I've been in the agent importing side. I've been in the education side and certainly uh, keep coming back to the hospitality side where I love creating guest experiences Um, but I try to have a different philosophy about what I do so yeah so I don't I I know you know the the other restaurants that I've uh, you know I've curated some great wine lists in Vancouver um Blue Water Cafe I opened I worked for Market by Jean Georges uh the coveted Le Crocodile restaurant here in Vancouver and many many more uh, but right now having probably the most fun in my career at mott32 uh for those of you who don't know mott32 is a fine dining chinese restaurant um but when i say that i mean you know you say to someone let's go to a chinese restaurant tonight they usually picture their dentist office or something that kind of atmosphere mott certainly has atmosphere it has a deep cocktail culture an extensive wine program um and it's a little bit more forward thinking that we are one of 4 Mott MOT32s in the world. There's also Hong Kong where I worked uh, in 2016 uh, for Mott. Uh, There's Singapore and Las Vegas as well too. So if you haven't had the chance, I highly recommend you, you try it.
0: I had such a wonderful evening. I want our listeners to know, which you know, there's Robert. (laughs) I, you know, it was the first it was like fresh off the plane. It was the yeah. first experience I had. And not only was the restaurant stunningly beautiful and the food absolutely divine, but the staff, you, Mark, Lisa, I had such a lovely time. <laughs> the funny thing is I had ha- made a reservation for the next night, but I was staying nearby and I was like, ah, maybe they'll take me a night early. <laughs> And so when I came in, they canceled my, my other reservation and we're like, we'll just take you in tonight. And then when I was leaving, I was like, can I actually have my other reservation back? I want to come tomorrow. So you weren't working the second night, but I actually had two nights in a row. I had dinner there and everything you said was on point. It it is just world-class. It was amazing. I I just have to thank you all for the wonderful dinners. (laughs) I had two nights in a row.
1: I'm so Um, glad that you liked it. I think it really surprises people because like It's not the Chinese dining experience that most people certainly don't expect. We were fortunate um, right before the shutdown, we made the top 100 restaurants in Canada list, uh, which is a big coveted list to be on. And then looking through the list, I realized that, hey, you know, we're the only Chinese restaurant on this list that puts us in a pretty nice place. That's
0: amazing. So I do agree with you that most people maybe wouldn't go to the vision of what it actually is when you say Chinese, but I lived in San Francisco for 13 years. One of the things that I loved about Vancouver was it reminded me a little bit of the restaurant culture in San Francisco, where it was um, heavily influenced by Chinese um, cuisine, Japanese cuisine. Maybe that's a West Coast thing, probably, but I definitely it reminded me of, of of a really elegant version of nights I'd had, and even with the the dim sum was like amazing, and I haven't had dim sum in a while. I mean, we have good dim sum here in LA, but it was outstanding. So anyway, so th- I have to thank you, and you gave me a VIP tasting while I was there, and talked to me through a lot. So. You know, I think what I would love to do for our listeners, Canada is not some place that I think many people will associate with wine. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the high level on Canadian wine because my understanding is British Columbia and Ontario are the two biggest producing regions. Could you tell us a little bit about why those regions are um known for wine and what it means?
1: Well, I mean, Canada has a thriving wine industry and it has an explosive growth. To give you an idea how big now just the BC wine industry is, I think last year, 2.8 billion contributed to the economic uh, factor of British Columbia, which is substantial. The Okanagan Valley is our premier uh, wine growing region here, certainly in, in British Columbia. Um, But it's not on the coast. It doesn't really have anything to do with proximity to water, type of thing. It has more so to do with, I mean, it's about a four and a half, five hour drive to get to the Okanagan Valley. And the Okanagan Valley, as a wine region, is massive. And they're slowly developing that into smaller sub, what you know as ABAs, right? So we call them GIs up here. Uh, Well, the wine-savvy people do, other than that, we just call them wine regions. Um, but I mean, the Okanagan Valley, as an example, from tip to tail, is probably 250 kilometers. Uh, wow. I don't know, that's about 155 miles north to south, right? Look at Napa, Napa's only 15, right? Mm-hmm. So um, we are actually, interestingly enough, hotter than Napa. Um, it's classified climatically pretty much as a desert. And you know we have tumbleweed and you know it, it's ama- it amazes people how hot it is here. Uh, it's a shorter season, but on average we get I think it's something like two extra hours per day of sunlight, which if you know much about viticulture is substantial. Um, massive soil uh, you know, uh, the different soil types from calcareous to gravel to limestone to everything and bc is just starting now to come into figuring out what its quote-unquote proper grapes should be for proper areas uh you know the there's the similkameen valley and Naramata bench and all these other places that you have that are sub gis within them and they're starting to emerge because maybe this region is better for our little mesoclimate, and this one is better for its particular you know soils and whatnot and those things just take time and you know if you, if you hang British Columbia on the timeline of history, it's infantile. It's 30, 40 years old on a serious level. I think in, if I remember correctly in 1980, 1981, there was probably 10 to 12 wineries here. I think only, I think in 2001, there was only 40 in British Columbia. Okay. And that's just that 2001 is not that long ago. Um, And now there's something like three hundred and eighty so it's a it's expanding rapidly
0: that's incredible i did not realize it was that recent and i mean to some people listening the 80s won't seem recent but it, it really <laughs> is when you talk about other wines in our collection which are from bordeaux and rome so.
1: yeah, ab- absolutely uh, ontario does incredibly well as the other province obviously um they have a they're a little bit further south uh, in i guess what the southern most of the Island, i think or Lake County. Um,
0: I saw Niagara Peninsula was, was listed as a top appellation and I've been to Niagara Falls. It's, I think, you know, for people listening the the Great Lakes, you know, Ontario is like a border lake, right? Between the United States and Canada. So we're, when you're talking about Ontario, you're talking about that area, correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. The Niagara Escarpment uh, and whatnot. Um, They're bigger than well, I think they're bigger. I think they do bigger production, but there is some incredible world-class wines like, you know, 1994, I believe mission Hill won the Avery trophy for the best Chardonnay in the world. And that wow. helped to start kind of put things on the map. And then, you know, I think whatever checkmate recently got a hundred points for one of their Chardonnay, but I, I don't know. I, I stay away from that stuff. Cause I am very anti-ratings <laughs> which uh, which is another topic altogether but i mean i understand ratings right ratings can put a grape or a region or even a country in this case on the map mm. but uh, it's uh, it falls apart for me when i don't trust that guests know what to do with ratings taste is everything in wine like I, t- I i try to encourage people that when you go to a store and you see a shelf talker and it says it tastes like melted blueberry and seductive Soaky ribbons of chocolate and crushed velvet cushions filled with unicorn horns whatever it is <laughs> um, if that sounds appealing to you your mouth will like it buy it do i care that it got 88 points versus 90 points no but the, you know we are forced into a society that pigeonholes people into ratings that higher number is the best You know, because taste is so individual. That's something that I really think people need to remember. And like, I don't have a sweet tooth. I know sweet wines. Well, I know how to judge good versus poor, but you could tell me that, you know, we could use the analogy with chocolate. You could tell me that this piece of chocolate got a hundred points. I don't like chocolate. So I'm not going to enjoy that. I don't care that hundred points doesn't make me want it. So it's about individual tastes You can certainly balance those things, but anyways, did I? I don't even know. Did I even answer that question about BC? or, <laughs> or about wine
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think that you definitely touched on what I was looking for, which is what are the two regions like? How big is it in the scope of the world stage? And like, where are you in the journey as a winemaking nation? And it's fascinating to me your answer. Because I did that part, I did not know that it was that recent. I, I think the one thing I would like to know that we haven't hit on yet is the Canadian wine palette. Do Canadians drink their own wine? Are you, you know, like, we're going to talk about ice wine later, but like, are you making wines just to export or are you making wines to drink? And so what does that mean? Like, what do Canadians like? All right. I think you and I talked a little bit when I was at dinner about there's a surprising number of Bordeaux style wines, for example. What other generalizations can you make about the Canadian palette?
1: If you're talking about what did the consumers look for and what do they enjoy? Um, a great question. Uh, that's I've watched that develop and change a lot in the last 10-15 years where people were the worst kind of education was a little bit of education and if they knew a little bit it suddenly made them an expert but they had no idea what they were talking about <laughs> that could be said out.
0: about so many things
1: <laughs> right like you know what i've really enjoyed seeing lately is uh certainly a development of that palette and the sense of adventure people there will always be that part of the market that jumps on the bandwagon of whatever is clicky oh do you have any orange wines because i read about that and gucci magazine or something i remember
0: orange wine as a
1: thing and now it's natural wines like yes okay so natural wines made poorly are flawed wines like when i got into wine 25 years ago all those things you're tasting were flaws they were bad now have i had good natural wines yes i have had a few you look at marcel lapier and there's a handful handful and a half of other ones that i really enjoyed but by and large you know i'm asking i always ask people why like why are you looking for natural wines or organics i understand but even organics are very misunderstood um you know there's different you can make organic wine from non-organically grown grapes etc and there's categories for everything and whatnot so it's just a matter of educating the public more properly but what i've really enjoyed is that lately i've been hearing a lot of well i drink a lot of pinot noir so What else is there out there? And that's what I'm after. If you want to spend the rest of your wine life drinking Italian Pinot Grigio and Argentine Malbec, all the power to you. Nothing wrong with that. You're going to have a happy life. Your mouth's going to be enjoyed, uh, enjoying a lot of different flavors and you'll be happy. But if what you like about Malbec is a value priced wine that is dark core, black fruits, um, well, maybe I can introduce you to Monastrel from Jumia in Spain. And maybe I can introduce you to revisit Merlot again, because Merlot got bashed so bad after Sideways, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, yeah. I, I we we actually, at MOT32, we offer these wine adventure reservations. And it's kind of a take on Omakase but about wine. You don't know what you're going to drink and what you're going to eat. And everything is served blind. And I use it as an opportunity not to try and make the guests guess what they're drinking because that's an uncomfortable position I never want to put my guest in but I want to use it as an opportunity to introduce new food and wine pairings dispel the myths behind pairing wine with Chinese food and at the same time introduce people to new regions or grapes or you know I mean I use wines from Uruguay and Tanat and Turkey Um, you know maybe serving someone a red wine from Greece that they're not familiar with Uh, there's so many great wines but it's the development of your palate right and i've seen that happen how did we get from you know noodles to ma- to pasta right how did we get from bread to baguette and it's your palate develops right um and that i've seen happen a lot with the canadian palate in the last few years where they're a lot more educated they're a lot more savvy um and their expectations are higher um uh, but yeah i mean the canadian palate sweet there's still a big you know i I work a lot with an asian clientele and they are looking for sweet red wines um and that has to be kind of coerced into well all red wines are dry except for pathetic we'll talk about that another time um
0: (laughs) we could do a whole show on that (laughs) i know well yeah
1: i did an episode an entire episode a very controversial one as it turned out to be on youtube uh my channel there about why and the, the the caption is why I love apothecary cabernet and instantly when I launched it I started getting texts from people going have you lost your mind what did the pandemic do to you like what are you thinking about <laughs> but if you watch it for the four minutes that it is you can't tell me I'm wrong if you like it there's nothing wrong with that I also don't want to ostracize people who love that wine mm-hmm. because that a wine like that generates a new generation of drinker right it's like, I I, I think I relate it to wine on the rocks. Like first time you have a scotch, wow, this is disgusting. It's too much. So you put it on the rocks and the ice melts it, dilutes it, makes it more palatable. As you start to appreciate it more, you take away until you're finally at one cube, no cube, or you're drinking it neat. What's the same idea with sugar and wine or sugar in anything? So sugar makes everything, you know, Mary Poppins said it best, right? <laughs> <laughs>
0: I think about, I drink coffee black. I drink tea without, you know, I don't like milk and sugar added to anything, mm-hmm. but it took me living, I think, in London to get to that place. Like, I think I I went to work every day. I used to work at this environmental nonprofit. And the, of course, I was an intern, so I made tea all day long. And I think It did take me a while when I was younger to get there. But then once I got there, now everything tastes sweet. So I'm not a fan of of the sweeter wines. And then there's even levels to the not sweet. I have to say, like, before I um, worked for where I work now, I had never had Muscadet. And then I had a tasting and somebody and I was like, oh, I don't like, you know, Moscato. And they're like, no, 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 it's not Moscato. It's Muscadet. And it was so bone dry. If I'd have tasted that when I was 30, I would have been like, yuck. Like yep. I just wouldn't have known. But I was tasting it in a very specific setting with a sommelier. I think, you know, Chris, Chris Ouell is the one who I was like tasting oh, it with. I think you guys are, are connected online. I saw. Um, yeah. And he, when he explained it to me, I think there was something about the context of it. I wasn't eating. It was just like a, you know, afternoon and like, I fell in love with it. And I, it, and it's so dry and you can't have, like, you can't go to the theater or have a glass of red and then have a glass of muscadet, because then I, you'll be like, this is trash. Yeah. But it, it, there's something very specific about it. And I, I, it's a long way of saying, I think everyone is on a wine journey and each part of the journey is okay. But I think unfortunately people miss out on things if they have things at the wrong time. So I think there is like a place for the apothics and the, the, some of those wines and, and we have certainly wines in our collection that are on the sweeter side, but I've much enjoyed wine more now that I'm at the place where I can drink a Muscadet and be like, Ooh, this is delicious.
1: Well, yeah. And people uh, not only will, not only will the marketplace help educate and develop those palates, but so do people. I mean, I'm one of my companies. I, I manage private home sellers and guys that I was buying every massive Napa Cabernet for back in the, you know late 90s early 2000s have gotten older getting closer to retirement and now they're all drinking burgundy and Pinot.
0: burgundy you know? is i feel like the same t- place in the journey chris howell and i were talking about that you, you get to a place where then Burgundy is all the rage, and I feel like mm-hmm. that's I. I'm, I'm sort of at that place where I'm like, oh, I wish I wish I could afford to buy Burgundy. Well, for- <laughs> that's, that's that's the other
1: thing too. You also need to get to a place in yeah. your life where you can afford to buy Burgundy. <laughs>
0: I'm not <laughs> so, I'm not quite in that place, yeah. but I I can appreciate it. So it's aspirational, which is good.
1: Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean the palette has developed quite a bit. It's got a lot more sophisticated, and the expectations here of the most of the Canadian palettes that I've certainly dealt with have mature to a part where what's next but people are even more like when even four years ago when we first opened mod 32 people would come and they'll say well we're having peking duck so we have to order pinot noir fine but now i hear well we w- so we were thinking pinot noir but what would you suggest and being open to other things because i mean if you like pinot noir why can't you love sinso or lagrine or pelo verga or a properly made entry level village level uh, Valpolicella, you know, like just that should be light and fruity. Not one of those Valpolicellas where the winemaker is trying to make a baby amaroni out of it. That's what Rapasso's for. But, anyways. Um. <laughs>
0: that one I'm going to have to Google after. I'm not sure I'm in that place in my journey. Could you say it again?
1: Well, you know i had the pleasure of spending quite a bit of time there with the valpolicella consorzio and you see this i mean valpolicella should be light soft and fruity and every day like you can get away with having this with seafood like salmon or scallops okay. or whatever but what would happen is in the region you'd have somebody who wants to make the best val, or have the number one am, or valpolicella so they would make it a bit heftier and then, like, okay. well that but that's what was for right And your ripasso shouldn't taste like your Amarone, your Amarone, you know what I mean? It should be three distinct, clear lines. That's another thing altogether.
0: (laughs) (laughs) As I said earlier, when I came in MOT32, I was really grateful for the flight of wines that you let me taste. And I think among them, one that I wouldn't have known to ask for was ice wine. I actually didn't know what it was. Ice wine. I was so excited to hear the story, but I, I would like you to share it with our listeners. So could you give us a little overview on what iced wine is, and then maybe a little history, because I do understand that it was originally possibly Roman and then maybe German, and maybe just talk a little bit about what it is and why it's very Canadian also.
1: I mean, it's a little bit misunderstood by a lot of people. So you, a lot of people are familiar with probably the most famous dessert wine in the world, which would be Chateau de Chem. And so turn of course, made by botry-sized uh, affected uh, grapes, right? And if you think about the principle and how Botrytis works on grapes, right? It pierces little holes in the skin. Some of the water inside evaporates out, concentrating the sugars, making it sweeter. That's the Kohl's note version. Well, with ice wine, what happens is you have to leave the grapes hanging on the vine to freeze completely, usually to minus seven by law. Um, to be classified, you have to be have your, harvest your grapes at minus seven. So essentially now what's happened is all the water inside the grape has frozen. Uh, I use it an analogy that isn't the most palatable thing to think about but if you've ever gotten gasoline and water mixed together you put them in a bag you freeze it the water freezes okay so think of the gasoline as the sugar again not a great analogy but now you can't bring the grapes into the winery because it would slowly warm up and it would dilute them so you have to roll your press outside um you know you the, the grapes get harvested at two three four or five o'clock in the morning when they're as cold as they can be they put into a press and it's literally like pressing a frozen block of ice and you extract this little nectar droplets of sugary goodness and takes a long time to ferment out Um, it is incredibly lusciously sweet Um, and it became popular in canada probably the late mid 70s I think Hanley was the very first one ever. Um, I think 1978 was the first commercial that, from what I recall uh, released, but going back through the timeline of history, yes, the Germans first, I think probably the early 1700s had made ice wine and I'm sure it was made like many good things, it was made by accident um, mm-hmm. where they were like, what, what did we do with them? How they would have figured out to press them instead of whatever they were doing was is unique. But ice wine certainly helped spark the economic availability uh, to Canadian wines. Um, I think it was something like 1988, I think total ice wine production was, and I'd have to check these figures, but I remember it being something like 2,500 cases made. That was in 1988 and in 1989, something like 140,000 cases made someone figured out that hey you can make a lot of money on this it is very expensive to produce and it comes out and it's the ultimate dessert wine um you know it is made from a myriad of grapes personally and professionally for myself i need to i preferred a grape that has a higher acid balance um obviously riesling does incredibly well there is a a grape called vidal that does really well with it here in in canada as well and then in i think i have to check the dates but i think the first red dessert wine was made i think from palatieri in ontario would have been made from merlot and red ice wine is a little bit more unique certainly more red berry fruits to it Um, like regular ice wine depending on the grape you're usually in the ballpark of this honeycomb apricot saturated white peach flesh that kind of thing um whereas with any of the reds you have cherry strawberry rhubarb tart fruits but then again lusciously sweet so you know the question becomes what do you do with these things you know i remember working retail many years ago and someone saying oh i hate ice wine and i always have a professional curiosity like why do you hate ice wine what did it do to you. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, Well, a friend of mine gave me a bottle and we had it with dinner. And I hated oh, it. Yeah. And, and I said, Wait a second. What, what did you say? You had it with dinner? He's like, Oh, well, yeah. I'm like, What were you eating? We barbecued steaks. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Okay. <laughs> you imagine eating a barbecued steak with a bottle of maple syrup? It would be the same thing, right?
0: It's like going to play basketball and bringing a tennis racket. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not going to work.
1: <laughs> yeah uh, exactly um but you know what do you pair with it you know if you look at classic food and wine pairing principles you're talking always make sure that the wine is sweeter than the dessert well ice wine is so sweet that honestly my always my recommendation has been what do I pair with it I'm like you don't pair anything to it that is dessert have a little two ounce glass uh-huh. it'll be lower in alcohol you know you got to drive home whatever that's great and it's not going to fill you up as much but if you're going to eat food with it you know you want to do you know creamier cheeses like a good triple cream kind of cheese would go well figs go incredibly well with it I find um you could do an apricot tart with a little honey ice cream on it would be a great classic I've done so many things with it over the year but I like getting away from desserts with ice wine um I use this, a dessert wine, not a nice wine, unfortunately, but I use, do use a dessert wine with one of the dishes at MOT32, the Shaolin Bao uh, soup dumpling, which has a little elevated spice to it. So I pair it with a extremely rare Moscato Rosa. It's a Moscato from northeastern Italy in Trentino, but it's red, and it, because, you know, the Moscato grapes will naturally mutate to red grapes, but anyways. Um, I have paired it, it very successfully with things like uh, foie gras, especially if you do the torchon of foie gras, like that cold pate style. That's a great pairing. That works really, really well. But yeah, I mean, always in 375ml bottles, always very expensive. I mean, you can expect to pay, you know, upwards of 70 to $130 for a half bottle of it at a retail level. That's substantial. You
0: know, so. Yeah, because I imagine it's low yield. So it would be pricier just in that sense. And then very much so. I think when I was at Mott, you poured me Pentage Roussan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, and the Roussan ice one. I've heard about Inniskillen. And then I was at the airport and all I saw was Peller Estates at the duty free. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, think are of those Peller. The t-
0: three to no, or what are the.
1: Definitely not. Uh, well, the <laughs> Pentage, yes.
0: <laughs> Pentage, yes. Okay.
1: I will always have a great deal of respect for the Inniskillen because that was the craft mine major of Don Zeraldo, one of the pioneering fathers of Canadian wine. Um, and I think I even have some super old bottles in my cellar here, but uh, of his uh, ice wine. I just think that there are better ones. Um, when you look at what Mission Hill is doing for ice wine, certainly Tin Horn Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I use Pentage. Uh, there's, uh, you know, Garinger Brothers make some fantastic ones too. Uh, so, I mean, there are quite a few of them up there for ice wine, but basically my foray for people is if you don't have a, a penchant for sugar, taste them at a restaurant level somewhere. Mm -hmm. Most every restaurant up here in Vancouver, if you look at their dessert wine list, they will have either some form of a Sautern or late harvest, some tawny port, and they should have probably a nice wine, depending on the restaurant, right? And if I would rather have guests try it for $22 for two ounces uh, and see what it tastes like. And if they like it, then yeah, go buy it. And honestly... Uh, I, I i would gravitate personally i would recommend gravitating towards grapes that have a more natural acidity to them like a uh, riesling mm-hmm. uh, i've had one good made one from sauvignon blanc uh, i've had one from chardonnay that tends to be a bit flabby but a few not just one but yeah uh, so i don't know i mean that's i mean ice wine is it's a flagship it, it it's massively exported of course number one export is going to china
0: when i was in Mott 32 we were talking about how you built uh, up a wine collection there I know you've been doing this for years so if you were to put together a really impressive Canadian wine cellar of like five or six of the best Canadian wines by vintage like by by producer what would be in the collection I think you already mentioned a Mission Hill award-winning wine what else would you have in there
1: Well, I think that's it's such a good question, and I think this answer changes year to year because because there is a lot of variability, Um, even though I love a wine one year, I'll make sure I taste it the next vintage before I commit to it. Right. So I would do it this way. I would say, let's assume you're moving up here and I have to build you a BC wine cellar. No holds barred. Okay, so I would start with some bubble you probably want some classics in there like blue mountain makes incredible bubble um there's a lot more other great bubble uh sumac ridge stellar j there's a whole bunch of them uh i would get you some white wine for sure i would probably stock it with some kettle valley pinot gris maybe uh checkmate chardonnays you know they definitely are expensive, but really world-class Chardonnays, Meyer Chardonnay for sure. Um, I would put in some, any of the wines from Little Engine, I'm not going to lie, I I have a personal tie to them, but also I can unabashedly speak professionally that these, anything they're doing is amazing, and that's Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noirs, three different tiers. Uh, I would make sure that you had some of, probably their, just their, Entry silver Sauvignon Blanc from Little Engine Winery. Um, probably the gold Chardonnay and the gold Pinot Noir, probably. Uh, for sure, those would get in there. Um, I put some Riesling in from Synchromesh and probably some Riesling from Tantalus as great classic examples of what we can achieve here. Um, Pinot Noir probably One Meal Road if you can get your hands on it incredibly small production but what a world-class wine maybe Foxtrot uh, then I would get into some bigger Reds Echo Bay Cabernet Franc certainly what John Skinner is doing a Painted Rock winery his Syrah along with uh La Vieux Pen Syrah I would want some of that in there Orofino Cabernet they have this delicious little 20 dollar cabernet that i just can't get enough of um and yeah maybe it's just some blends pentage makes some wonderful Rhone blends i would definitely talk about some Rhone varietal whites in there yeah and then some merlot from whoever knows mission hill you could do mission hill merlot it's fantastic you know doesn't have to break the bank um but I'm yeah. There's so many wineries that I would love to to make to introduce people to. I always travel with BC wines. I always grab four or five bottles. Martin's Lane Riesling. I brought last time. Uh, I brought that Painted Rock Syrah. I brought a Checkmate Chard, and I brought uh, Meyer Pinot Noir as well. So, um, yeah, it's kind of like a hit list, like you know. You're going to go broke, but you're going to drink really well.
0: <laughs> this is good. I'm going to, I'm going to, this is going to be my um, dream seller.
1: And I'm going to get killed for everybody I didn't mention on this. So. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh,
0: you You know, we haven't talked about Nova Scotia. There is Nova Scotia wine, right?
1: Oh, Far, Benj- farthest east? Benjamin Bridge. Heck yeah. You want to talk okay. about world-class bubbles?
0: Yeah. I want. So I was going to ask about bubbles because I was under the impression that um, they, they Did some sparkling wine there.
1: They do fantastic wines. Uh, You know, I don't really know the winemaker or anybody up there, um, but every time I have an opportunity, um, I've gone out for champagne with friends and wind up buying that first because it was on the list. You know, they are Mm -hmm. absolutely, it's like, look at, but the the global warming too, you want to talk about ice wine future, less and less is being made because it's getting too hot right i remember i was up filming an interview with scott robinson the winemaker at little engine last summer i met him at nine in the morning to do the shoot out in the vineyard it was 42 degrees out already at nine in the morning i think it or 38 or something like that which is what 100 110 fahrenheit right like holy smokes so it's getting hotter so yeah
0: climate change it both is much hotter and much colder we had i had a guest on the show and we talked about sustainability and whatnot but he he was saying that you know yeah every 10 years you used to lose an entire vintage but now it's like every four
1: right like, yeah, and we just have
0: a lot more frost
1: i think we have to start watching it as soon as they start making ice wine in burgundy we all move to mexico
0: <laughs> when they start making it in mexico we're really in trouble oh my Wait, god so yeah. I arrived, so I've been to Canada before, but I had never been to Vancouver. So this recent trip that I mentioned when I met Yale, I, I I you, I showed up and it was like eight degrees. I mean, Fahrenheit, like not even, so I don't even know what that is Celsius. Cause I'm like, I don't know. The, it don't was know the
1: not metric. that cold. It was so there. cold.
0: It was not, it was so cold. <laughs> and I looked at my iPhone and it said eight and then it said 14. So I think it was like 14. And then the rest of the week, it was like 20 to 29, but I live in LA so I, the, after I met you, the second thing I did was I had to buy a coat and I was like, <laughs> I want to get one that I know is going to be warm enough because it, it just for me was so cold. So I oh. <laughs> bought a coat. And I was like, I'm going to get a Canadian coat and the brand name and I'm another free product placement was Moose Knuckles. <laughs> I was oh like, yeah. This was the most Canadian name I've ever heard of. I have to buy this coat. So I, I bought a Moose sh- Knuckles coat.
1: <laughs> I was shocked when Moose Knuckle came out because I'm like that was such a different term when I was a kid. Oh
0: is it fa- is that not well, for it, a podcast?
1: It, um, <laughs> well, I, I will
0: just I think well, I know what it is, but I'll just say like my Moose Knuckles coat was amazing. It got me through the week. And now that I'm in LA, I'm like, I'm never going to wear that thing. <laughs> I'm going to have to go somewhere just so I can wear this coat. I, I can
1: easily sell that good. for you. Moose Knuckle <laughs> is a, a highly retout, uh, regarded brand right now. It and is. Yes, it's a really mo- nice coat. Is. I bet you nobody in LA knows what a moose yeah. is even.
0: I've only seen a moose once in, in real life actually. So oh,
1: I grew up in Northwestern Ontario. I see them all. It, <gasps> mo- I'm, so, they're I'm, so I'm,
0: beautiful, I bet.
1: Yeah. Well, they're terrifying if you know a lot about them because it's one of those animals that god forgot to put a size limit on it's like they're like they're enormous they can dive like up to you know 30 40 feet hold their breath like oh it gets terrifying but anyways definitely off topic I have I've also paired wine to moose before I
0: think they're a little bit like a rhinoceros right like people don't realize (laughs) that's that's the real danger people go and they're like worried about lions and I think rhinoceroses kill more people yeah because if you get in front of them they'll just charge in your and your your odds are the odds are not in your favor. (laughs) (laughs) No. I always think of the moose as so friendly because there's cartoon, what, there's that cartoon with a moose when I was a kid. Wait, now I'm I'm embarrassed. I can't remember. Rocky and Bullwinkle. Yes, Rock, thank you. Rock, How to
1: read the world of squirrel and moose.
0: <laughs> Rocky and Bullwinkle. Thank you so much for all the insight. Um, before we go any further, I do want to take a moment to talk about your YouTube channel. I think you it's called Behind the Label, you said, is the series? Is that well,
1: right? I no, it's just under my name, Robert Stelmachuk. Okay. But I do three series on there. I do Wine Talk, which are educational geared. And then I do Bottle Talk, which are wine reviews, where my whole shtick is wines are reviewed, never rated. Um, and then I do a series called Behind the Label, where I do interviews with people who you know, create the the things i've got big things coming this summer for the for the channel when i can get back to it i've obviously spent the last three months getting back up and running and you know a mad pace of christmas and 18 hour days and whatnot but when i started to interview um winemakers i thought i how can i do it where it's a little bit different than everybody else so you can interview a winemaker and he can talk about the barrels he uses in the soil and what the ph balance was this and honestly no one cares you know, if you're someone and you want and you need for professionally, you need those things, they're available on the website. You can get all that. But if social media is about personal connectivity, then why can't I try to do something goofy and fun to help people want to connect to a winemaker? And this actually came. I was having dinner with uh, David and Cynthia Entz, who own One Mill Road, uh, dear friends of mine. Brilliant Pinot Noir. Oh, my gosh. They used to have... Uh, uh, Laughing stock vineyards. But, anyways, um, I asked David, I said, you know, what's the biggest downside of switching to doing one meal road from what you were doing at Kettle Valley? Or, sorry, uh, at Laughing Stock. And he said, I only have one wine. He's like, what if, like, before, if someone said, oh, I don't like Pinot Noir, then you could pour them the Merlot or the Bordeaux blend or the Syrah or whatever, but I don't have that anymore. And I started thinking about that. And I thought, well, if, if social media will be per- about personal connectivity, then what if we do some kind of a stupid interview to make people want to try his wine like this guy's just seems like fun and cool I want to try his wine so in the interviews I ask like sure if your wine was a household pet what would what would it, it be if you had a superpower what would you want it to be um, one of the questions that I love asking is if you had to go into witness relocation what would you do where no one you know would know how to find you you find a lot about people when you start asking them questions like that, but hopefully, you know, it's fun. And they're like, you know, Scott sounded super cool. I want to go by and check out little engine wines now. If I can make that happen once it's worth it. And yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a fun outlet for me. They trickle over into my Instagram as well. Um, a little bit. My Instagram is, you know, I do different series on there. I do between two dragons, which is kind of like.
0: Game of Thrones spin off. <laughs>
1: No, I kind of interview the wine as if it was a person. Oh, okay. It was a take on between two ferns. Oh, of course. Yeah. If you read through, if you know wine and you read through the interview, you'll get the entire tasting note of that wine in the interview. Be that from what they're sitting on or what they're wearing or what they're drinking in it, whatever.
0: Well, I'm going to throw one of your questions back at you then. Let's Uh pretend you're in the witness protection program and you can't go back to work tomorrow. If you could take your talents for wine and you had to move somewhere where you don't have friends and family and you could hide out, where would you want to hide out? Where in the world would you go?
1: Where would I want to hide out?
0: Yeah. Like Uh, it could be like in a vineyard in South Africa or. No,
1: because everyone would be looking in wineries for me. So if I had Uh, to get away, (laughs) if I had to get away, it would probably be, I don't know. I'd go be a ranch hand on a farm in. South Africa, probably, because I've never been to South Africa, but I keep hearing about it.
0: Well, if you go there, we got to connect you with Alex Dale, who's an amazing guy. Thank you so much. You've given me so much time today. and It's so great. I'm just so grateful we met when, when I was up there recently. And we'll stay connected. And, and thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: You know what, uh, Kristen, I really appreciate your time and having me on. I loved it. I think it's fantastic. Anyone that's listening, if you want to, whatever, follow along on YouTube, IG, or you want to visit me in MOT32 when you're in Vancouver, reach out. Absolutely. We'd love to show you what we're doing. So thank you so much.
0: Okay. And now for the second segment of this podcast, we're going to do a wine tasting. So I want to welcome onto the show our resident sommelier, who's joined me many times before,
2: Ferdi. So hello, Ferdi. Ciao, Christine. Ciao, How are you? Good. Hier, hier sto benissimo, and I'm ready to drink some wine with you.
0: Ah, bene. For our wine tasting today, I wanted to put together a list of three wines that would be great to have on the wine rack mm-hmm. during winter. And what that means is these are the months when a lot of people are staying indoors, Getting cozy, eating casserole or soup or other winter fare. So, three wines we have on the list. I today I have two reds and a white. So let's start with the Chateau de Colombier, a two thousand and nineteen vintage from Bordeaux. It's boutique and it is a gold medal winner. So, Freddie, do you have this wine, and can you tell us a little bit more about it?
2: Absolutely. Um, I love I love Bordeaux with winter foods because when I think of winter foods. Uh, What comes to mind is always like hearty stews and winter vegetable stews and soups and uh, heavier foods, like things that stick to your bone, like you're cold and you want something cozy and comforting. Um, And it's always hard for me to pair wine with soups or stews because you're doing liquid with liquid. So that can be very tricky. But there's one thing that I always think when I do a wine pairing is, Um, the analogy between food and wine. And here's, so hear me out on this one because it might be a little tricky. So when I think of a red Bordeaux winemaker, I always think of a chef that's making a soup because a Bordeaux winemaker every year picks the best grapes out of the five or six available red grapes that he has in, or he or she has in his vineyard and makes the best wine for the year. So it's almost like, and I feel the same when I'm making a soup. So I pick the best ingredients that I can find around and I'll I'll try to make the best possible soup. So there's a big analogy there, but obviously you can pair a red Bordeaux with every soup. But when it comes to winter soups, you have those, you know, hearty, starchy ingredients. And a Bordeaux typically is not a big, bold wine. It's a medium-bodied wine. There are not a lot of tannins there's good acid it's usually like the the uh, the goal for a bordeaux winemaker is to make a balanced wine so you can you start with you know a, a good a good balanced wine with a nice hearty soup and i think they match already because of uh you're matching the 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 flavor profile of the soup which is hearty with a, with a wine that has good fruit flavor Good savory flavors, I, that's something that's complementary to the flavors of the soup. So I like red Bordeaux, like with spicy lentil soups or beef stews, um, even a potato and leek soup, something that's even more starchy or rich. Uh, French onion soup uh, would be another great pairing. So for me, red Bordeaux, winter soups, perfect pairing. I
0: think this wine has. While it has the expected notes of cherry and red currant, it also has a little vanilla and spice, which to me is also very wintry. Makes you know, you just get that little hit, extra hint of vanilla and spice, and it makes me immediately think of hot cocoa.
2: And I love, I love.
0: Not actually, that the wine tastes like cocoa.
2: <laughs> and I don't know if you can uh, if you can perceive that on the nose, but I get savory elements like bay leaf, and to me, bay mm-hmm. leaf always rounds up and makes gives a little sweetness to the soups. So for me, that is what gets me more excited about this kind of pairings, like um, wines that have a vegetal component and Bordeaux always does. Sometimes it's, um, you know, bay leaf or um, or sage, um, or uh, it could be very mineral, like pencil shavings or whetstone. And I feel like those those are very complementary to uh, ingredients that come from the dirt, like onions, potatoes, or sweet potatoes.
0: What soup are you going to be making for the rest of this winter? Do you have anything in mind?
2: I'm I mean, I'm going to be very very stereotypically Italian, but my favorite soup is minestrone. Oh,
0: my favorite too. This is why we get along. I love and minestrone.
2: And minestrone would be fantastic with this bordeaux. Because bordeaux, the fruit of bordeaux is always a cassis or mm-hmm. because of because of the cabernet sauvignon, because of the cabernet franc, you get the red fruit which is cassis. Um, sometimes even like pomegranate or uh, the red cherry. And I think those ingredients are very complementary to a little bit of tomato sauce that goes into the minestrone, like, or, you know, the cannellini beans.
0: Absolutely. Perfect. Okay, great. Okay, for our second wine, I have the 2018 Henri de L'Orgeray Cote de Rhone. And this is a delicious, full-bodied red blend uh, from France, obviously. It's very dry. Unlike the first wine, this one's a little bit more on the black fruit side with spice and licorice. Um, I've had it a few times. I loved it. It was absolutely delicious. So, Freddie, now that you're tasting it, can you give us a little more insights on this wine?
2: Absolutely. And I love Cote de wines. That, you know, in France, they're considered the working class wines and they get associated with kind. Can- three style or rustic cuisine. And that's very wintery to me. So all I'm thinking about right now is we're moving on from soups and stews to like, like things that are roasted, like roasted, mm-hmm. uh, roasted squash and pumpkin or roasted chicken, all things that uh, the style that we're going to do, the style of pairing that we're going to do for this um, is a technique that's called matching the weight of the food with the weight of the wine. And this is not a measurement, and it's a it's a, it's a tactile sensation that you get on your palate. So I'm going to give right. you like the brief explanation of it. If I give you three different bites that are the exact same size of different foods, for example, I'm going to give you a bite of fish, a bite of chicken, and a bite of beef. They're the same exact size, but when you chew on it, they have a different consistency, mm-hmm. a different a, you know a different weight to it, a different density. And the same thing, I'll do it with, I'll give you three glasses. One is going to be skin milk. Another one is going to be whole milk. And the other one is going to be half and half. So you, you'll see, it, oh, it's still milk, but it tastes different, it has a different density. Right. So with wine, with wine parents, we do the same thing. So we'll match the weight of the wine with the weight of the food. So when I think of a wine like this, I would say, I, I will put this in the medium in the medium category, like chicken, like butternut squash, or or potatoes again, like roasted potatoes with rosemary.
0: Where would you and where would you put ratatouille in there? Would that be in this category?
2: I would. Yes, ratatouille would be perfect in okay. this category because there is it's not a light texture, so it's not as soft versus to say like a flaky white fish. It's not as as dense as chewing on a you know, chewing on a ribeye steak or chewing chewing on uh, like a, a pork chop. Like it's right in the middle, there's some chewing, there's some resistance that you get. So you need some tannins to help you with the chewing and to stimulate your appetite and you need some acid. So this wine will match that perfectly. And I'm loving, beside the black fruit that you were mentioning and the mm-hmm. licorice, I'm also tasting a lot of that Grenache quality, a lot of that raspberry, a lot of the macerated strawberry, and there's there's a the warming sensation that's coming from the alcohol percentage is also very uh, very comforting, very wintry.
0: How does this wine pair up with a casserole for someone who's doing sort of like a green bean casserole or something that's sort of warm and toasty?
2: I feel I feel that the uh, the the crunch uh, adds a little texture, so you're you, again you're matching those textures. Um, this wine has a little bit of, uh, has a touch of vanilla, as a touch of oak. So that plays well with the breadcrumbs on top. Uh, there's enough acid to cut through the fattiness of the cream that's used in the casserole. And then the fruit plays well with the vegetal component of the green bean. The green bean tend to be very vegetal, uh, very like, you know, the chlorophyll has that, that veg- vegetative uh, taste to it. So the, the the black fruit, the red fruit plays really well with that.
0: Great. And it obviously, it would also go with chicken casserole, right? Of course. Yeah. Perfect. It, even, a, even a a mushroom casserole. Oh, mushroom casserole. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we have two, two veggie options for you and I and chicken for everyone else.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Perfect.
0: Cool. All right. Last, but certainly not least, uh, this is one of our newer wines. So I'm excited to introduce it to our listeners. Today, we're gonna taste the 2020 Windsor Hills barrel fermented Chardonnay. This is absolutely very velvety, this wine, and it's a California wine. The main flavor notes are citrus, but it has vanilla and caramel from it, obviously, from the barrel fermenting. So let's have you, now that you've poured a glass of this, Ferdy. why don't you take a sip and tell us what you think.
2: Okay well first off let me just let me just say i i i did a little preview of this one and a little oh, okay <laughs> i needed to because i do love chardonnay and uh, chardonnay is one of those grapes that it is a chameleon grape so it's a grape that really takes on the winemaking style and the terroir where it comes from and this is so californian to me it, it just when i think of this wine i think apple pie Um, I think um, beautifully butterscotch, uh, uh, mayor lemon, It, it is a fantastic wine. There's a lot of complexity and the oak usage is very integrated. Like it's not a predominant aromas that you get from the wine. This is very balanced. So you get the oak, but you get that, those nice fruit flavors coming from the wine and there's plenty of acid. So I'm thinking, You know, a category of foods that we haven't considered yet when it comes to winter are baked goods, um, like a baked quiche uh, or a chicken pot pie, um, a focaccia, like a nice pizza made in the oven, like things like that. Uh, Those kind of foods, uh, these kind of foods, you don't have, you can pair them with a light wine. You can pair with a big bold red, so you need something that's that's in between, and a big bold white is the perfect option for that. And uh, based on the fact that when I taste a, a Chardonnay like this, pie crust is one of the things that comes to mind. Already, like quiche and chicken pot pie will be my uh, my recommended pairings because think of uh think of the wine being like that extra buttery and flaky sensation on your palate. Then the acid of this wine helps you cut through the richness. Then there's that pop of citrus notes there. It's always good to add acid. Acid acid makes you salivate. Acid makes you digest better. Acid makes you want more food. So when it comes to pairing this Chardonnay, I'm thinking, there you go. Quiche Lorraine, um, chicken pot pie, Mashed potatoes. My mom actually loves Chardonnay, so I
0: think she'll love this wine. I might have to send her some this winter. I think Chardonnay is a really food-friendly
2: wine, isn't it? Chardonnay is an excellent food wine, and uh, you know, let me say something about Chardonnay. Then I, I always, I'm always a, I like to champion Chardonnay because Chardonnay has a bad rap, like sometimes. People could be like, I hate it or love it relationship. Can have a hate it or love it relationship with Chardonnay. It's too oaky or it's too buttery. It's too heavy. Uh, I would say, don't hate the grape. Hate the wine you're drinking. Because it's not about the grape. It's about how the grape is made. Chardonnay can be, as I was saying before, Chardonnay is a chameleon. Chardonnay can be tart green apple and lime. And it could travel the food, the, the fruit spectrum all the way to mango, pineapple, something a little bit on a, on a juicier side. It just depends on how the winemaker uses it. The key is always balance. So Chardonnay is super food friendly and very versatile because you could find the Chardonnay, imagine like when you buy Chardonnays, like buying apples. Mm-hmm. If, it comes, if it comes from a cool climate on, on very mineral soils, think the tartest green apple, you can find like those very sharp acidic green apples then it comes to like for example a white burgundy Uh, there's a little bit of oak usage you have a yellow apple it's more like it's juicier there's that lovely touch of the vanilla and and butterscotch from the oak which is french oak which is a little lighter then you come to uh New world style of Chardonnay is like with American oak with and you have that red delicious uh, snow white apple with with more of a more of a, um, a, a caramelized or a, um, like a sweeter definitely in need of that pie crust you get more of that buttery caramel butterscotchy kind of apple um, but. Would you say no to any of these kinds of apples? <laughs> I could never no, say no I to love Chardonnay. Apples. Like, I love apples. I like green apples and I like red apples. I like apple pie made with a red apple and apple pie made with a green apple. So for me, uh, Chardonnay is always a winning choice. I love but it. But I do I do agree with like I do agree with that comment that people say, like, you know, if if the, too much of one thing is never good. Mm-hmm. So if you're Chardonnay, Chardonnay is only—it's a, it's a one-note. If all you taste is the barrel, then blame the winemaker. Don't blame the grape. The grape is awesome. The the wine was not made the right way. But this is perfect. This is nicely balanced, and I can't wait for you to taste it.
0: Okay, Ferdy. Thank you so much for all the insights. These are three wines we haven't had on the podcast yet, so I'm glad we got a chance to talk about them. I'm really excited to try some of your winter food suggestions. I think I'm definitely going to do some sort of mushroom quiche or casserole uh, in
2: the coming coming month. So
0: thanks for joining me again.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Like, I'm, I'm going to get cooking right now.
0: I know. Well, I, or baking. Your baked ideas sound good too. I might have to Yeah, go. we came
2: up with some good ideas.
0: <laughs> okay. Well, thanks everyone for listening and see you on the next episode. For today's podcast, we tasted three wines from our collection. From France, we tasted the 2019 Chateau de Colombier Red Blend, the 2018 Henri de Lourgeret Cote de Rhone Red Blend, and from California, we tasted the 2020 Windsor Hill Barrel Fermented Chardonnay. To enjoy 35% off wide, use today's podcast code, Canuck 35 As always, to order these wines, visit WineInsiders.com. Leaders in online wine. Get better wine delivered in days.